you're joining us here in person, you'll see the passage behind me on the screen. And if you're joining us online, you'll see it on the screen at home. Okay, Mark 2, 13 through 15. This is God's word. And Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And then let's go to Mark 3, 13 through 19. And when he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord. We give you all the glory and all the praise. Lord, you are truly awesome in this place. And Lord, you are enthroned on the praises of your people. And so, Lord God, after that wonderful time of worship, we know you are here enthroned on our praises, and I pray that you would now reveal yourself, speak to us through your word. Father God, let your word be clear, let it be convicting, let it draw us to you. Father God, make your will for our lives clearer and clearer. We thank you, be with everyone who has made time to be here, be with everyone joining us online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, last week I talked about the theme or the focus for this year, because every year we have a brand new theme to kind of rally our church around, and it is disciple. Disciple, just one word. And the word disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes, which means learner, a student. And it's a follower of someone's teachings and way of life. So it's more than just sitting in a classroom, but it's actually attaching yourself to somebody and actually learning everything you can from them. These days it's done more digitally when you subscribe to a YouTube channel, but this is kind of the meaning. And many of you guys already know what this is all about. I said this last week, but many of you guys are in professional careers, you're students in school, and you already know what it's like to become a good learner or a good disciple of somebody who's above you, who's going to teach you something. And you know already that this requires a lot of intentional dedication, right? You need to actually commit yourself to some sort of a process. And it takes a level of reorientation in your life, right? You don't just kind of do it on a Saturday or just kind of slip into this. And so many of us know this. Well, unfortunately, what is clear for many people in their careers and schooling is not that clear when it comes to their walk with God. And so I take a lot of blame for that. I think the churches take a lot of blame for that. But it's also your fault too. And I'm just kidding. But it's like it's, it's everyone's fault, I think that we are not actually walking as disciples as we should. And so because of that, there are a lot of strange expressions of Christianity today where Jesus is someone's savior but not Lord. That would have been unthinkable, unexplainable in the early church. People who say they believe in Jesus but they don't follow Jesus' teachings in his way of life. Another mysterious, unexplainable thing. And yet for the early Christians... To be a believer in Jesus was the same to be a disciple 
of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus was to be a believer of Jesus. They go hand in hand. Mark Dever, he said the Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. So that's basically the Christian life. Is you are a disciple and you are all about making disciples. So then what went wrong? Okay, why do so many people today in the churches seem to believe in Jesus, but they don't really follow Jesus? They're not really, really disciples of Jesus. Well, we can go in depth, and there are a lot of things we can talk about. But last week, we looked at, in my mind, the most foundational reason. Here's the most basic reason why I believe so many Christians today are not disciples. It's because they heard and received an inadequate gospel, or sometimes even a false gospel. So the gospel is foundational, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it is what we stand on. It is what you build your Christian life upon. And if you have the wrong gospel, then everything else you build upon that is going to be wrong. It's kind of like building your house on a fault line. It doesn't matter how big, how beautiful, how much square footage, that house isn't going to be right. Something's not going to be right. And so if you have an inadequate gospel, it's like that. But you, have, you will have an inadequate Christian life. If you have a false gospel... You're going to have a false Christian life. As one pastor said, every spiritual problem in your life can be traced back to a wrong understanding of the gospel. So this is how foundational it is. And I think this is where so many people today in the church, they get wrong right from the beginning. And so they get the wrong gospel. And again, it's not their fault. It might be the person teaching them. And yet from that point on, everything else is kind of wrong. And they never become disciples. But in contrast, if you have the right gospel, if you heard the true gospel, then that will propel you into a life of following Christ. I believe there's a direct correlation, and it'll keep you following Christ. It'll keep you on that path. And here's why. The true gospel is the beginning point of all true discipleship to Jesus. That's where it all begins. So we must start with the true gospel. When you read through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at Mark for the next several weeks, you see that Jesus preached the true gospel, and that propelled people into following him. So what is the true gospel? He simply put, it's the good news that Jesus saves sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. I know sometimes we get caught off guard when people say, what's the gospel? Share that. Explain that to me. But you don't have to be caught off guard anymore because I just told you right now. Just memorize that. The good news that Jesus saves sinners just like me, just like you, through his life, death, and resurrection. And that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. That is the core of the gospel. But last week we saw that it's more than that. Because if you were to just stop right there, then you might never follow Christ. Because you might think of salvation as just a ticket to heaven and I'm just going to live my life. Thank you, Jesus. I'll see you when I die. And you may never follow him. So, so what more is there? Well, last week we saw that this is also the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God where all your deepest needs are met by God's total answers. So the kingdom, this is where God's will is acknowledged and obeyed. And this is what the kingdom of God is. It is where the king's will is always acknowledged and obeyed. And so when Jesus came and preached the good news, you know what he did? He said, the kingdom of God is here, is right here, right now, and because of me, now you can enter in. You can enter in. That's also the gospel, the full gospel. So the gospel is more than a ticket to heaven we receive, and then we just go live our lives. 
See you when I die, Jesus. No, it is the good news that because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, now we can enter into this entire new reality. It will flip us upside down and inside out. It is called the kingdom of God. It is an entire new reality that you become a part of. In the same way that my parents, when they moved from Korea, South Korea, to America, when they were in their 20s, it flipped their world upside down. They said they couldn't stand the smell of cheese. It just stunk like feet. They couldn't believe, why do Americans eat this, right? And now they love cheese. <laughs> but it just flipped their world upside down. This is far greater than that. It is the kingdom of God. It is a new way of life. Entire new way of being. It is where Jesus is Lord. And because he is Lord, we begin to do what he says. See, that's following him. So do you see how getting the right gospel, that propels you to now follow Jesus. It's not just a ticket to heaven. I'm in this thing called the kingdom of God now. Jesus is Lord. I'm following him. Everything begins to change. So this is the lifetime opportunity, an opportunity of a lifetime, I should say. Okay, you don't want to miss this. And my hope and my prayer as I've been preparing these messages is that nobody in our church would miss this, would miss this opportunity. You know, I've shared this before, this example. But to be a Christian and not a disciple, you know what it's like? It would be like meeting the love of your life on a park bench one day. How many of you guys would love to do that? And by the way, if you're married, that, that love of your life is your spouse. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> but you meet this person one day. And you start talking, you hit it off, and then you lose track of time. Because you're staring at each other, <laughs> into each other's eyes. And then at the end of that conversation, you end up getting the person's phone number. And then you say bye, and you go home, put that phone number away in your desk, and you never call that person. You never call. So imagine what a gigantic missed opportunity. Well, that's the case when you believe in Jesus, but you don't follow him. I would say it's an even greater missed opportunity. Why? Because you've missed everything. You've missed everything. Maybe even heaven itself. So my prayer is that nobody in this church would be like that. So please, as we go through these messages week after week, just grab a hold. This is an opportunity of a lifetime to be Jesus' disciple. So this is what we've looked at so far. And today what I want to do is I want to look at the portrait of a disciple. Okay, the portrait of a disciple. Because in Mark's gospel, after we see Jesus begin to proclaim the gospel, propelling people to follow him, this is what we see next. But we begin to see a picture of the kind of people who follow Christ. So what kind of people followed Christ? And this is an important question because some of you guys might be sitting here wondering, is this even for me? Okay, this is the year disciple. I mean, is this even for me? I'm not particularly strong in my faith. I'm just kind of coming back to church recently. I struggle with commitments, especially spiritual commitments. Maybe some of you guys feel I'm not really the disciple type. So if those are your concerns, those are real. And I believe the gospel of Mark has answers to your concerns. It has clear answers, and here they are. Jesus' disciples, when you begin to see how Mark paints a picture of them, they were unremarkable, they were undeserving, and they were uniquely called. So that's the portrait we see in Mark. So first, the disciples were unremarkable. So look at Mark 2.13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's up in the northern part of Israel in Galilee. He's right by the sea. And the earliest disciples of Jesus who heard his teachings and began to follow him, they were just the regular people, the common folk living in Galilee. Just the everyday average people. In the Gospels, they were literally people of the land, people of the sea. Okay, we're talking about uneducated farmers, fishermen, carpenters, pottery makers, stay-at-home moms. These were the people that Jesus began to reach out to. Okay, these are the people who were living far from the centers of power and influence in Judaism. Okay, this was on the fringe of the elite society. And as Jesus went from town to town in Galilee, these people, they began to hear Jesus. They never heard anybody like him, and they began to follow him. And by the time we get into Mark 2 and 3, Jesus would have had many followers by this point. I know it kind of looks like he only had four guys, James, John, Peter, Andrew, but there would have been many. We don't know exactly how many. There were at least 72. We know that because a little later, Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples to minister. But there were probably many more than that, numbering in the high hundreds, okay, maybe approaching 1,000. We don't know, but there were many. And these were the earliest disciples of Jesus, both men and women. And that, by the way, would have been unheard of, having women disciples. Okay, that, nobody did that in ancient times, but Jesus accepted women as disciples. But the point is, these were just normal, everyday, unremarkable people. In those verses we just read, we don't even get the names of the vast majority of these people who began to hear and follow. Okay, we, don't, we don't even know them. And when we finally get to a list of specific names of these disciples, nothing changes. But we get a list of everyday, unremarkable men. Okay, nothing changes. These are just still regular guys, even if some of them raised eyebrows. But Jesus' 12 disciples were an odd bunch to be sure, but they represented the general population. If you took a cross-section of the general population in Galilee and Judea at that time, you would get something pretty much like these 12. Okay, in Mark chapter 3, 16 through 19. You would pretty much just get these guys. So it says here, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which means the rock, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. You know, I love Jesus' nicknames for his disciples. They, they sound like names you would hear at a pro wrestling match, right? The Rock and Sons of Thunder. <laughs> it's just like, wow, I love these names. And you know what, by the way, this might be one way to look at it, but Jesus' disciples would have been far more likely to be at a pro wrestling match than a lecture at Stanford. Okay, these are the guys we're talking about. These were just regular guys. They worked with their hands. They would work all day, just go home, have some wine, see their kids, and go to bed and do it all over again. But these are the names of his disciples. The list continues, verse 18. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So here's the list of Jesus' main 12. And we get four lists very similar to this in the New Testament. There's one in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, and one in Acts. And in each of these lists, Peter's name always comes first because he's recognized clearly as a leader of this group of 12 disciples. And aside from a few of them, we really don't have any more information on these men. We don't know who they are. We just know that Peter and Andrew, James and John were fishermen. Peter was brother 
with Andrew, James, and John were brothers. But again, these were just average, uneducated, working-class men. Can we know that Nathaniel was a sincere Jew? He was a seeker of truth. We don't know anything else about him. We know Matthew was a tax collector. We know Simon was a zealot. And by the way, the fact that Simon and Matthew were together in the same group is a testimony of Jesus' life-transforming power. And we'll see a little bit more later why that is. But this is pretty much all we know about these guys in terms of their background. But the point here that I'm trying to emphasize is they were utterly unremarkable. That was the most remarkable thing about them is how average they were, like all, like the rest of us. And all four Gospels paint a very unflattering portrait of the disciples. But Mark in particular goes very far in showing that these disciples were nobody special. Because throughout his book, the, the disciples are portrayed as slow to understand. Oftentimes, they missed the point. They didn't know what Jesus was saying. They were quick to boast. Okay, who's the greatest? They were always jockeying for position. They were lacking in power. They couldn't even cast out a single demon. Okay, even their prayers fell to the ground. They were weak in their commitments. The moment there was persecution, they scattered. They were weak in their faith. Oftentimes, they doubted. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, it says some of them doubted. So in other words, they're just like us. Right? These are just normal human beings. And so why did Jesus begin his ministry with these people? Okay, why did he call such average, normal, weak people to be his disciples? Okay, why did he start his kingdom movement with these guys? Well, the scripture is very clear. Here's the answer. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many are of, are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So do you guys see that? Jesus chose the nobodies to humble the people who are somebodies. Jesus chose the weak ones in order to shame the strong ones. And after he's done doing his great work, the ones that he chose, they also are humble because they realize afterwards, we had nothing to do with this. There's no way in a thousand years we could have produced this. And so this is God's intention from the beginning. Nobody gets the glory, only God alone. It is to his praise. And so God lifts up the weak and the foolish in order to humble the strong and the proud. And by the way, this is the revolution that Jesus brought that is unlike anything in the world. It's changed the world, in fact. You know, there's a lot messed up in our culture today, amen? <laughs> there's a lot messed up. But when you look at our society, there are still traces of the Judeo-Christian worldview that it was built upon. You see traces of it everywhere. Because in our culture, and you know this because you live in it, we still lift up the weak, don't we? We try to help those who are poor on the fringes, those who are hurting. We bestow dignity on the poor, right? We don't, turn, we don't look down on the poor. We try to help the poor. I'm not even talking about Christians. I'm talking about just everybody in our society. Almost anywhere you go in our society, whether it's church, the workplace, school, public spaces, doesn't matter. If somebody showed up in a wheelchair, are you going to, like, knock them over? Hey, this isn't for you. Go away. <laughs> no. I mean, that, that would be just shocking. I mean, that's the point. It would just be utterly shocking. Because immediately, everybody, doesn't matter, Christian or non-Christian, we would immediately say, oh, whoa, let's give some special attention here and care, some dignity to this person. They're in a wheelchair, right? 
You guys understand this. But why though? Why, why is that? Why is our society like that? Because if you know human history, that is not the norm. This is a bizarre aberration in human history. And so we take these things for granted. But it's because we live in a society that has been so thoroughly saturated with Jesus' teachings. That has been so thoroughly saturated with Christian values. It's become the air we breathe. And most, we're not even aware of it. You know, the historian Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, by the way, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he said the most successful revolutions are the ones that become invisible. I'm paraphrasing him. But they're the ones that become invisible. In other words, they are the revolutions that dominate a society so completely, it becomes the reality you just live in. That's just the way things are. It's the air you breathe. It's so normal, you just take it for granted. That's the evidence of a revolution that is totally dominated, that is utterly successful. And when he said that, he was referring to Christianity. Okay, here's actually a quote, but he says, so profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has become hidden from view. We just take it for granted. Um, of course, of course we help the poor. Of course we don't like kill people who are weak and falling behind. We help these people. We love these people. We show grace. Well, again, why is that? Okay, why do we live in this kind of like wonderful utopia? It's getting bad. It's getting, it's getting worse. But, but the traces are still there. Well, it's because of Jesus and his revolution that he started 2,000 years ago when he began to walk along the Sea of Galilee and began to call the nobodies and the weak things, the people who aren't, the people on the fringes, the foolish things, to shame the wise and the strong. It's because of his ministry. And in doing that, he lifted up and dignified those who are despised, people that we even despise today, if we're honest. We kind of look down on these types of people. And yet this revolution began and is still going on today, and you are a part of this revolution, amen? You are a part of it. So now, when you bring it back to yourself, and this is the year of disciple, right? Be a disciple, make a disciple. Don't look at yourself and all your own weaknesses. Okay, don't look at your own lack. Don't look at yourself and say, oh, I'm just average. Okay, what can I do? What can I offer? Don't look at yourself and say, you know, I don't know if I could be Jesus' disciple. I don't know if God can use me. Well, based on what Jesus began to do in his ministry, I know this. God can use anybody who wants to be used. And it's true. God can literally use anybody who wants to be used. And the less they have to offer to God in terms of their own strengths, the more that he can use, the more he will use. And in, the, and in fact, the one who thinks they're somebody and they're self-reliant and they come to God going, oh, I have all these things to offer, they're probably the person God's not going to use. See, it's upside down. So if you were like, if you are like these disciples that we read about here, just normal, everyday nobodies, unremarkable, nothing to offer, then you are precisely the person Jesus is looking for. Okay, you can be Jesus' disciple, amen? So that's the first thing we see in the portrait. They were unremarkable, but it goes even further than that. They were undeserving. They were undeserving. So look at Mark 2, 14 through 15. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, another name for Levi was Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
So Jesus' ministry from the very beginning was very controversial. In fact, in the eyes of the religious elite, it was scandalous. And here's why. But he was from the wrong part of town. Okay, Nazareth? Okay, that's a hick town up in the hills. Okay, who comes from Nazareth? Not only that, he ate with the wrong crowd. He hung out with people who were sinful and shameful. The religious leaders, they had such a term, the right term for them. They were unclean. I mean, doesn't that just capture it? Oh, unclean. Get away. You're dirty. Right? Isn't that what unclean means? You're dirty. So here are clean people, and here are the dirty people. And Jesus, why are you hanging out with dirty people? The dirty people. And to get more specific, Mark highlights the fact that one of his early disciples, again, Levi, same name as Matthew, he was a tax collector. A tax collector. Now today, when we hear that, we think IRS. Okay, not too bad of a job. Maybe I want to go work there. I mean, right? I mean, there's a tax collector right here. We, we rent an office building from them. But, but like, we don't, we don't really understand. But tax collectors were Jews in ancient times who worked for the Roman government. And they were basically middlemen. They were henchmen doing Rome's dirty work. Because Rome, they were sustained by the taxes of the population, and they had a very complex tax system that gave all kinds of opportunity for people to use it and exploit. And so people would get taxed on all kinds of things. But Rome didn't want to get you know, into the messy, nitty-gritty details of all that, and so they would hire these Jewish tax collectors. They were middlemen who worked for the Roman government, but they would go in and they would say, pay up, right? Pay up. And Rome gave them full authority to collect more than was owed in order for them to keep it. So all kinds of shady things, exploitation, harassment, all kinds of stuff would happen. So you can see why in the first century, tax collectors did not have a good reputation. I mean, to just put it more bluntly, people saw them as crooks, and they were traitors to Israel. So, and this was written about in the Jewish writings, but a Jew who became a tax collector couldn't be a judge or a witness in court. You're banned from that. They would be kicked out of the synagogue. You can't be a part of this church anymore, the synagogue. Their house would be declared unclean. You walk into a tax collector's house, you're unclean. They could not offer gifts or donations because no Jew was allowed to receive them. And the tax collector's family would be totally disgraced. You weren't welcome anymore. You couldn't come to the club. So tax collectors were unclean, they were dirty, and they were utterly hated and despised by all the people. And so now, with that background, just picture this. Jesus walks up into a tax collector, literally at his job, and he says, follow me. Yeah, you look like a good candidate to be my disciple, follow me. You know, it's hard to even just put this into kind of modern day um, example, but this, the closest I could think of would be Jesus today walking up to a drug addict on the corner or a pedophile, and saying, hey, follow me. You look like a good candidate. Follow me. And so this was utterly scandalous. These people were undeserving. Jesus called them. But that's not all. But there was Simon the Zealot as well in that group of 12. And the Zealots, this was a totally different group, but this was a group whose very existence was to fight Rome. And at whatever cost, free Israel from Rome's power. Now, in and of itself, that could be noble, right? You're, you're fighting for a cause. But these zealous, they wanted freedom by all means necessary, which meant they would even get violent. 
So these guys were actually terrorists. Another name for these zealots were called Sikari, which literally means dagger men. And the reason why is because they would carry these short little curved daggers inside their cloaks. And they would carry them at all times. Why? Because they were on mission, right? We're going to free ourselves from Rome. And they would use it to even get violent, to even kill people connected to Rome. So these were the zealous. So now look at this. You have Matthew, the tax collector, right? In the eyes of everyone, this is a Jew who's a traitor and a crook. You work for Rome. And then right next to him is Simon the zealous, who's basically a terrorist at one point ready to kill anyone who's working for Rome. <laughs> what? How does that happen? How do you get somebody totally connected to Rome, working for Rome as a crook, and then a guy who wants to kill anybody working for Rome? And yet this is the power of Jesus and his grace. See, these were a group of unremarkable, but beyond that, undeserving people with all kinds of backgrounds, and yet they were brought together. Even men on polar opposite extremes, men who would have been natural enemies, and yet they got brought together through the power of the gospel and Jesus' grace. And eventually, ultimately, even Simon and Matthew would lay down their lives for one another and for their Lord. I mean, that's the degree of their bond. So this is the movement that Jesus began. It was not only for the weak and unremarkable, but it was for the undeserving. See, it was a movement of grace. And again, this grace was so powerful. I, I feel like we don't see examples of this enough today. But it brought together the most unlikely people who would have just killed each other otherwise. And yet now they were brothers. They were sisters. So Jesus' movement was a movement of righteousness and truth, yes. But also of grace. It was a movement of grace. And what does grace do, you guys? What does grace do? It always flows to those who are least deserving. That's what grace does. You've got to understand that. The very nature of grace is to flow like water to the lowest point in a person's life. That's what grace seeks out. If you don't understand that, you don't understand grace. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Do you believe that? The area of your life where sin is greatest, that's where grace goes. It's kind of like if you broke a bone in your body, Let's say you broke your ankle. Are you going to go to the doctor and get a bandage wrapped around your head? No, the bandage gets wrapped around your ankle, right? That's the way grace is. It seeks out the weakest part of your life, the most undeserving parts of your life. The bandage of his grace goes where it's needed most. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, recently I've been watching these uh, videos, uh, these Jewish Christian videos. I know I mentioned it a lot. I just can't leave these videos. And in one of these videos, they were doing a telling of the story of John 8. But the story of John 8 is basically the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, but it's very powerful. But Jesus one day was teaching in the temple court, and suddenly a ruckus happened because the Pharisees and scribes dragged this woman out of somewhere and threw her in front of Jesus in a crowd. And they basically told Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses in the Torah says such women should be stoned to death. And that's true. It says that in the Old Testament. But what do you say, Jesus? And so they were laying a trap for Jesus. And Jesus, in response, did something very strange. But he knelt on the ground and began to write on the ground with his finger. Just writing in the dirt. 
We don't even know what he was, maybe he was drawing a happy, I don't know, <laughs> a happy face. But he started writing on the ground. So they asked again several times, Jesus, did you hear us? What do you say? This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And after a little while, Jesus finally stood up, and then he said, whoever is without sin among you, you throw the first stone. You throw the stone. And then he went back to the ground. And in that moment, everyone paused. And you could even feel the silence in the air. It was so quiet. And then the Bible says, slowly, one by one, those hands holding up the rocks, they began to drop. And starting with the oldest, going all the way to the youngest, they began to drop the rocks and they left. And eventually only Jesus and the woman was left and Jesus stood up and asked her, woman, where are they? Your accusers. Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. You know, I don't know, I don't know why. This, this always just moves me so much. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. So this is the grace of God. Do you understand? It goes to the lowest point of a person's life. If you have not been touched by this grace, you are not a believer. You need to understand the grace of God. The grace of Jesus Christ met this woman on her worst day, at her lowest point. She was literally against a wall facing death. And then the grace of Jesus broke through and it saved her on the spot. You need to understand this. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You know, I remember this, but the, I had a friend, and he was called into ministry, but he really struggled because he, he told me one day, I remember we were at the church together, and he's like, you know, Roy, um, I know you're going to ministry, and I, I kind of feel like I, I, I'm called into it as well, but I, I don't know. And the reason why he said that is because he has such a wild past. But he said he saw things and did things that, as a Christian now, just seem unthinkable. He's like, I can't even believe I did those things, right? He has such a wild past. And because of that, I remember he told me, he's like, Roy, I don't know if God can use me. You know, my, my past is too terrible. I did too many things that I shouldn't have. And so he didn't use this word, but basically he felt disqualified. And so in that moment, I tried to tell him, you know, you're not, you're, you're not disqualified. God can still use you. But I didn't really know what to say, right? It was kind of awkward. But if I could go back and speak to him now, this is what I would tell him. Hey, you're the kind of person... Jesus exactly wants to use, right? Because Jesus calls the undeserving. That's exactly who he's looking for. People who know who they are, they recognize it, they've turned away from it, and now they're like, I have nothing to offer. All I offer you is a bag of sin and brokenness. And Jesus says, come, follow me, follow me. And the more unremarkable and the more undeserving you are, the more God's power can flow through you. Why? Because you know I have nothing to offer. I cannot rely on myself. So God's power has freedom to just flow. It flows. And so who are the disciples of Jesus? These are the disciples of Jesus. These are the people who followed him. So Jesus' disciples were unremarkable and they were undeserving. But there's one more. They were also uniquely called. Okay, they were uniquely called. So if you look at Mark 3.13, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And it says here, Jesus called to himself those whom he desired. And that word desired in the English 
In the Greek, it's actually a stronger word. It's more emphatic. It's the word willed. So Jesus did not just call people in this kind of hopeful, desiring way. Oh, I hope you follow me, right? I desire that you follow me. That's not, that's not what it's saying. No, he willed that they follow him. In other words, his calling had an effect on them. It drew them, right? He willed that they would follow. His calling enabled them to follow him. Okay, that's the point. When you turn to the 12, the calling of the 12, this is even more powerful, more clear. But if you look at verses 14 through 15, it says, He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And right there in the ESV, that word appointed, the 12, in the Greek is actually a different word. I, I know I'm making it sound like the English isn't accurate. It is accurate. <laughs> but, but there's more nuance, right, when you look at the Greek, when you look at the original. But in the Greek, a, a better word, a more accurate word is he made the 12. He made them. I know it's kind of a strange way to say it, but he made the 12. So Jesus did more than just appoint 12 men as disciples. He made 12. And right there, Mark uses the same word, made, as is used in Genesis 1-1, in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation into the, of the Old Testament. And in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And Mark took that same word, made, and he put it right there. Jesus made the 12 disciples. In the same way, God made the heavens and the earth. And here's the critical difference between appoint and made. One Bible commentator said, to appoint is to select from an existing lot or group and raise to a new status. So if you appoint you know, somebody, you're, you're, you're looking at a group that's already there and you just kind of pick one, right? And you raise them to a new place. That's a point, right? But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He went on, but to make means to bring into new existence to call into being that's something that wasn't there before. And that's what Jesus did when he made the 12. He brought into existence a group of disciples that was not there before. But what does that mean exactly? He made the 12. But on one level, it could simply mean that he made this unique gospel community of 12 guys, right? That community wasn't there before and now it's here. He made this new community. But on a much greater level, it can also mean he made the 12 it can also mean he's making a new Israel. He's making a new Israel. Because in the Old Testament, the number 12 has a big, big importance. But we know that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so the readers of Mark's gospel would have immediately picked up on that. Okay, 12? Wow, that's interesting. 12 tribes in Israel in the Old Testament, now 12 disciples of Jesus. And so what was Jesus making? Well, when Jesus picked these ordinary 12 men, what he was really doing was he was making a new Israel. He was making a new Israel. And in that very same process, he was pronouncing judgment on the leadership of the current Israel, which was actually a false Israel. It was hypocritical, corrupt, apostate Israel. But he was pronouncing judgment on them. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus wasn't replacing Israel when he made this new Israel, but he was renewing Israel. Okay, there's a big difference. He wasn't replacing the Israel of the Old Testament with something else. He was just renewing it. He was bringing it back to his true expression, the true faith of Abraham. He was bringing true fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. The current Israel of his day was completely apostate. They had completely lost it. And Jesus is like, I'm here to bring it back. 
So there was this renewed Israel he was bringing where Jew and Gentile now could be together as one people of God. This was God's vision all along. So this is another meaning of he made the 12. He was making a new Israel, renewing Israel. But there's one more meaning when it says Jesus made the 12. He was literally making disciples. (laughs) And I like that meaning. But when it says he made the 12, he was literally making these men into his disciples. So it was much more than, oh, you have a new role now. No, I'm going to make you into something. And isn't that exactly the call he's given to every believer today? You go now and make disciples of all nations in the same way I made disciples of you. And so this is Jesus' call. He has a unique call. He has a radical call where he steps into your life to those who are absolutely unremarkable, undeserving. His grace goes to the lowest point of your life and then he calls into being things that are not there. And he says, you're gonna be my disciple, follow me. And I'm gonna make everything that I want you to be. He begins to do it. And so if you hear Jesus' call and answer it, to not only just be saved and go to heaven, but to now be his follower, to be someone in the kingdom of God, he will begin to make something new in you. He will begin to call into being things that are not there. So do you see how discipleship is so much bigger than just a program in the church? Please don't see it as a program in the church. But I am talking about this year, and hopefully other people as well. We are talking about you entering into this raw connection, this living relationship with Jesus himself. See, I know we talk about, oh, 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 you know, you're going to be discipled by me or other leaders. And that is true to a degree, but, but really the point is you're being discipled by Jesus. He's going to make you into something. We're just a TA. That's the way I see it. I told that to some guys recently. But I'm just a TA, right? He's really the, the teacher, the professor. And I'm just here to help him as you're being discipled by Jesus. But Jesus will do it. And what you cannot do, he will do. So we're coming to a close But in this single portrait of Jesus' disciple, right here in the Gospel of Mark, he knocks down every excuse we can throw at him. Every single one. Again, some of you guys are thinking, maybe this year, I I don't know, is this for me? Can I be a disciple? And in that vein, you might have these excuses. I have nothing to offer, right? What can I give to God? I have nothing. Oh, my, my sins are too big, right? My past is too wild. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know what's in my life right now. A third excuse, I'm not able to do this. How can I do this, right? I can't be a disciple of Jesus like we read in the Old Testament or the New Testament. How do I do that? Well, Jesus, his answer is every single one. I call the unremarkable. (laughs) In fact, the the less you have to offer, the more my power can flow in you. I call the undeserving. The more sin you have in your life, the more my grace abounds. It goes to those very parts of your life. And you can't do this? I never called you to. I will do this. I will make you. I made the 12. I will make you my disciple. So in closing, let me ask, what do you think? Do you fit the portrait of Jesus' disciple? Can you be unremarkable? You're like, heck yeah. (laughs) Right? Can you be undeserving? I'm trying my best. Right? Can you hear Jesus call and answer it? I think you can, amen? Let's come before the Lord.
Thank you, Lord Jesus. We, we bow before you, Lord. Lord, it is an utterly amazing picture of the people you call and use, your disciples, Lord. Unremarkable, undeserving, and yet uniquely called. You will make us into your disciples. And Lord God, who cannot do that? <laughs> who can't check off those boxes? And so Lord God, I pray and ask, oh God, my prayer really this year is that many, many, it's hard to get all, but many, many will begin to answer and walk. Yes, Lord. I don't understand everything. I have fears. I don't know how this is going to look. I don't know if I can even pull it off. But I know enough about your call to say yes. Yes, I will follow Jesus. I will begin to follow him. I will commit myself to being his student, his learner. So Lord God, we thank you. We worship you, Lord. Thank you for just the unbelievable movement that you call us to be a part of. It changed the world. It's changing the world right now. Let us not miss it, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, as we do every Sunday, let's uh, just spend a moment just responding to his word. Like I said earlier, oh, please do not miss this opportunity to be his disciple, to begin to actively, intentionally follow him. Follow him. Follow him. Make your life be about following him. Center your life on following him. Because ultimately, that's what a true Christian is. It's not even really a choice. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're a non-believer. So Lord God, please help us to follow you. a moment, just a minute or so, just asking Jesus, Jesus, please help me. Can you please show me even further what it's like to be your disciple? If you have any fears and doubts, bring them before the Lord.